Welcome to podcasts recorded live at the Center for Spiritual Living in Portland, Oregon. Listen past the end of the podcast to find out more about our spiritual center and ways that you may collaborate with us. Happy Sunday, everyone. So as you know, we're finishing out our work in Ernest Holmes' Beverly Hills Lectures this week, the founder of Science of Mind, and this set of lectures taking place when he had his philosophy firmly in hand in the, in the 1950s, at his peak, you might say. Great book. For those of you who maybe weren't here earlier in the month, let me do the quick catch-up. Week one, we took the Ernest Holmes Challenge, and the Ernest Holmes Challenge was, what are we really thinking? Are we thinking the thoughts and beliefs that are really important to us? Or have we kind of gone over to the dark side a bit? Are we thinking the thoughts of the advertising community? Are we thinking the thoughts of of people in the mainstream news, right? And so the challenge was, how much of my thinking is really mine? And is that level of thinking what I want it to be? That was our week one Ernest Holmes challenge. Week two, we covered the idea of mental equivalence or divine pathways, and we discovered that there are some almost templates of perfection that we can lean on. The idea of beauty, the idea of love, the idea of abundance, all of these are qualities of spirit that we can actually tap into in a pretty fundamental way. And we ask questions like, well, what would love do in this situation? What would be more beautiful of an outcome in this situation? Really using those guiding principles of a way of focusing our own energy. We learned that they were like a mold waiting to be filled up. And that when we aligned our spirit and our thoughts with those creative urges, spirit will respond. Week three, last week, we talked about these concepts more completely by taking on one of Ernest Holmes' most beloved, most understood facets of spirituality, which is that our thoughts become things, that literally where the course of our thinking goes, so we will find ourselves. Our experience of the world is a reflection of our thinking. And so uh, every Sunday when Nancy gets up and say, if you change your thinking, you can change your life, that's where that comes from, that idea that our thoughts are creative. Well, today we're going to talk about our place in the cosmos. I want to talk about the idea that we're not alone, that there is a unity, a cosmic consciousness, if you will, of which we're an integral part. And the chapter in the book starts out by setting a framework for that that I want to talk about. And then we'll actually get into experiencing the cosmic consciousness. The framework that he talks about is interesting because it, uh, it will remind you of some of your perhaps uh, early Christian upbringing because he talks about it as a trinity. But this isn't the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost uh, by any means. And so as as we read through the chapter, I was like, oh my gosh, this makes such good sense. So the, the Trinity in Science of Mind is the mind or the consciousness of God, the soul or the workshop of God, and the body, the manifest stuff of God. 
And not coincidentally, he mentions the metaphysical chart or that idea of the divine creative process. And, and you'll notice on our banner on the back wall there uh, is a great example of that metaphysical symbol. And so you'll see that it's divided roughly into thirds. That represents his idea of the metaphysical trinity. The top half of it represents the mind or the consciousness of God. The middle part, that workshop of God, the sets of laws and the tools that things are created out of. And then the bottom part of the chart, the bottom third, represents the finite physical universe that was created in that process. Our thoughts become things. And the other thing he talks about, of course, is that this isn't just something that God does. We too are creative individuals. And so that the chart also applies to us. We also have our own thinking capabilities. And we also have our hands and our mouths that do a whole lot of creating out in the world, right? And then finally, as a reflection of our thinking and of our actions and our talking is our reflection of the world. So if our thinking is uh, filled with dismay and trouble, we're apt to be talking and doing as though there's a lot of dismay and trouble in the world, and we will expect to see that reflection of life coming back to us. Likewise, if we're filled with thoughts of goodwill and hope and abundance and joy and some of those things we talked about in week two, well, that's going to be our action in the world. We'll take action out of love. We'll take action out of joy and happiness. And that will tend to be our reflection back as well. We will see more of those things. We will experience more of those things. So the first half of the chapter, he's setting up this this fundamental picture of kind of the lay of the land and how things works. But then it goes all sideways. And by that, I mean, this is Ernest Holmes at his most mystical. How do you describe the mystical part of this. It's fine to divide God up into three aspects, much as the Christians have done with their idea of Trinity. But how do you experience it? If that circle represents all of God and the idea of the cosmic consciousness is that 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 is available to all of us, how do we go about tapping into that? Well, it leads me into today's joke, and I promise it's a little better than last week's. <laughs> For those of you who had major complaints about last week's joke, I promise this is a little better, but it'll still require a little bit of unpacking because honestly, my sermon is a joke. So it's called The Trader and the Devil. A Wall Street trader is sitting in his office late one night when suddenly Satan appears across the desk. Well, who are you, asked the trader. Satan, comes the response. (laughs) And naturally, I want your eternal soul. Really, says the trader, and usually there's some bargain involved. Do you want to talk about that? And so Satan says, well, everything you've always desired. I will make you the most powerful person on the stock exchange, the king of Wall Street. You'll be richer than your wildest dreams. You'll have an army of chefs and servants ready to wait on you. You'll have your own chalets on five different continents, a fleet of yachts, private airplanes, your own tropical island. I will make you the most successful and powerful person on this planet. Well, the trader thinks for a moment and then asks, yeah, but isn't there a catch? (laughs) 
Okay, you ready to unpack this joke a little bit? Because <laughs> I know a lot of you are thinking, how are you going to tie this into a positive message? Well, first of all, of course, it's inviting us to look at riches differently. Because as soon as I started talking about the joke, all of us started tensing up. There's this feeling among most of us that people who get money in the way we're describing here, there's something not quite right about it. There's something manipulative. There's something that's at the detriment of other people. And first of all, we have to dispel that concept. There is good for us, and we can have it, and it does not require giving up our soul. We do not believe in a devil, right? There's no corned creature waiting to like do some voodoo magic on us, right? <laughs> if there is any soul that is somehow lost, it is only because we have lost sight of it. It's not in danger of being taken. And the only bargain that can ever be made for the essence of you would be a bargain that you would make. And I would offer, too, the idea as Ernest Holmes describes a soul is more like that workshop that's within us. It's more that ability to do, that more ability to take our thoughts and our actions and beliefs and turn them into things in the world. Now, we do have free will, right? So we can turn our thoughts and beliefs and ideas into something that is wonderful and pleasant and abundant and joyous, uh, or we could make other choices, I guess. And, and it's occasionally in those other choices where it appears that the devil is present, where I've made choices that are harmful to me and possibly other people, but nonetheless they were choices that I made. Choices, uh, by the way, that can be undone and redone. So first of all, this idea of somehow the, the force of evil tricking you into giving up something like a soul, we had to unpack that in the joke pretty definitely. The other part that we need to unpack about the joke, though, is just this idea that our good comes at the expense of other people. Sometimes we think that there's not enough money to go around, there's not enough love to go around, there's not enough joy to come around, and, and that's where it gets us into the, I got, I got to collect mine. I got to have mine. I need to climb that corporate ladder, even if other people get shoved aside. I need to make sure that those grandchildren love me, not their other grandma. <laughs> and, and of course, I'm exaggerating this whole thing, right? I, I don't think anyone thinks in the morning, well, there's just not enough love for me, so I better do my darndest to get it all. And yet, and yet there can be that tendency on our part to think of this as a competitive universe where my good may have to be the surplus or, or maybe not even quite the surplus of other people. And when we have that belief, then it's true for us. Then our lives become a competition and we make bad decisions, uh, decisions that ultimately harm us, definitely harm other people on the way. We believe there is plenty for everyone. There's enough love, there's enough joy, there's enough abundance, there's enough health. Our good does not have to come 
at the expense of anyone else. That's why the universe we call is infinite in its nature. And it's God's good pleasure to give us all that we can take in. But the question then is, how do we be careful about this idea of competition? How are we sure that we're not harming other people in the process of us exploring our own love and our own life? Well, one of the ways is harking back to a couple weeks ago when we talked about those large containers of spirit, of love, of joy, of peace. And I think when you act on behalf of them, first of all, you're not going to get in trouble. So when you start asking questions like, well, what would love do in this situation? I don't think the answer is going to come back and say, love would have it all for me. <laughs> I think love would say, no, there needs to be compassion here. There needs to be that ability to love in an unfettered way so that people can experience their freedom as well as that interaction of love. And I think if you go through the other qualities of God, what would abundance do in this situation? It wouldn't be, I need to have all the stuff just for me. It would be, how do we share the resources on this planet so that everyone is benefited from it? That's my first clue, to zero in on those qualities of God and say, what would true abundance do? What would the infinity of the universe specify should happen in this circumstance so that everyone is held up on high? How would beauty act in this situation? How would joy act? How can joy be present for everyone and how can I facilitate that? So those are the kinds of questions you ask that I think will bring you on that track of not only experiencing your good, but actually drawing in the good to the people around you and the people in your community and so on. The next thing I want to talk about today, as Ernest Holmes gets more and more mystical towards the end of this book, he talks about how we can experience this cosmic consciousness. Now, we've defined it. We've, uh, we've seen that it's perhaps in kind of three aspects. But how can we begin to literally experience it? And I want to use an example that's very timely for me right now. Several of us went on the Good in the Hood parade walk yesterday, and it started out not quite what we had uh, expected. But we're supposed to check in sometime between 9 and 10, and we all get there. I think we were there about 9.15 or 9.30, and we discovered it was going to be about two hours of waiting. And so we're in this kind of loosely disorganized area with our little banner and the parade doesn't actually start until 11 o'clock and oh, by the way, you're not at the beginning of the parade either. So, uh, you know, and then first it was, now I think your group should stand over here. No, 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 then another official come, uh, comes and says, no, your group should stand over here. And what number are you again? And so on. And so initially there was this little bit of, oh gosh, this is maybe going to be not quite what we had expected. And then we start, and it's a, it's a cool day, and, and at the beginning of the parade, the parade watchers are a little scarce. We're kind of thinking, this is interesting, and how's my sore foot going to handle uh, the whole parade and so on? But I got to tell you, we turn the corner onto MLK, and suddenly it opens up truly into the community, 
and there are shining faces and people waving back. In, in fact, in fact, I think the first wave that came back to us, right? We're doing our best, Rose Princess. Uh, you know, hi everybody, as we're holding our banner and doing our waving, and and it was a little hollow at first because we're kind of waving at no one. <laughs> But we turned the corner, and I, I, I swear to you, the first person that waves back and sends us a blessing, it's like all of our hearts melted at once. And from then on, it was a pleasure. And, and we're noticing all of the beautiful, really, variety and the people in the neighborhood and the different stores that are open and the different things that people are doing for the Good in the Hood uh, weekend and, and really a sweet thing. And I, I really started feeling like, well, of course, this is my community. And then I did something. Now, now so far, you'll notice that I've been reacting to what's going on around me. So at first I was like, ooh, is this going to be okay? I feel like we're being kind of ordered around. Why is number 37 already walking in the parade and we're number 27? <laughs> right? So, so, so I'm reacting to the disorganization and, and then I'm starting to react to the faces in the crowd. And, but about then I said, now wait a minute, wait a minute. What is this parade about? This parade is about the unity of all of us. This parade is about each one of us being tied into something bigger than ourselves. And so I said to myself, in a total act of volition, not having anything to do with the people around me, as an act of volition, I said, this is unity. And I am going to now experience the love of my life. Within an instant, I realized that in the group right in front of us, Kate's granddaughter had been in the parade the whole time, doing cartwheels. <laughs> and, and, and I remember at the time, up until that moment, thinking, who is that active, fun little girl? She almost looks like someone I should know, right? <laughs> and as soon as I expanded my consciousness to say, this is about loving everyone on this day, Suddenly I could see that people literally were my friends. That literally people I knew were in that. In fact, Sarah Steele was in the parade, right? And up until that moment, I hadn't even realized it. And as soon as I made that commitment to be love in that moment, my consciousness expanded into the cosmic consciousness and people could not get enough of us. People were breaking the parade lines and coming up to hug us. One woman came up and said, oh my gosh, Pastor King, I haven't seen you in like a year. And I'm thinking, have I ever met this woman? <laughs> but her face was beaming and there were tears in her eyes. And, and she said, I'll have to see you Sunday sometime soon. You could just feel the wave of cosmic consciousness in that moment. Now, some of you were saying, well, I don't happen to have a parade handy tomorrow, <laughs> but I sure could use some of what you experience. And I will tell you, there are some tips that I can give you if you want to experience more of that cosmic consciousness yourself. First of all, I know that many of you have experienced something similar in meditation. And so for those of you who are meditators, Keep on keeping on. 
there is that capability of just letting go of all of the the strings, the attachments that we have to our stuff and to our ways of life. And, and if we can back burner that, if we can put that aside sufficiently, the cosmic consciousness reveals itself to you. And suddenly you will be in the midst of the love that you desire. You'll be in the midst of it. And it won't be a, it won't be a grasping. You know, I've noticed sometimes that when we look at the metaphysical chart and go, our thoughts become things, and so if I have the right kind of thoughts, then I'm going to get the right kind of things. Have you ever, have you ever approached it that way? Uh, and, and it's not uncommon, and, and it's not the wrong thing to do, but you'll notice it still has that aspect of graspiness. It's like I want the new car, so then I need to go up and what thoughts do I have that would match the new car? And then, okay, God, I'm waiting for the new car. <laughs> There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I will tell you, when you are part of the cosmic consciousness, you don't have to ask anymore. Whatever you really need and desire will be presented to you because you are a vessel willing and waiting to be filled with the divine consciousness of spirit itself. I hope you're getting just a little bit of goosebumps here because that's what it does to me. It's really knowing that I can never be alone. It's really knowing that my needs can always be met. It's knowing that I can give up trying to manipulate people and things and what a relief to not have to control every darn thing on the planet. And I'm, I'm guessing that's just me that wishes to control things. <laughs> But, uh, but if you happen at all <laughs> to see yourself in that statement, when you are part of the cosmic consciousness, you don't have to worry about anything like that. So meditation, one absolute good path. Do you know what another one is? It's education. You know, all of the great scriptures in the world are filled with relative truth. Now, of course, we can't take them literally, but all of the great scriptures, whether it be Christian or Jewish or from the Eastern tradition, all of these truths, when we sit with them, when we contemplate them, when we read them, will have a transformative effect on you. And so that's another thing you can bring into your spiritual practice is reading about some of these topics, reading about love, reading about joy, reading about things that will help you get over your need for stuff and, uh, and so on. Then take those, some of that new knowledge and put it into contemplation. It's a dynamite way to experience more of the cosmic consciousness. If at the beginning of the month, though, if Ernest Holmes gave us a challenge to really be aware of our own thinking, I would like to offer you a challenge in closing today as part of your homework. With each passing day, see if you can be more than just yourself. Let me explain just a little bit here. So often our ego has us making sure that our own needs are taken care of. And of course, that's important. We need to make sure we have a place to live and the food to eat and the things we want to do. And we can count on our ego to drive us in that area. But what I'm asking you to do this week, and maybe more than just this week, is 
if we are part of the cosmic consciousness, then we are acting on behalf of everyone. So when we make decisions, when we go about our daily lives, whether at work, whether we're at play, whether we're by ourselves or whether we're with other people, we're acting on behalf of the cosmic consciousness. We begin asking questions like, well, not only would this serve me, but how does it serve humanity? This is good for Larry, but how might this also be leveraged to be good for someone else? It starts awakening compassion in us. It starts awakening the idea that we are more than just this body and this mind and that we not only have a right and an obligation to experience the good life, but we have a right and an obligation to help the planet experience the good life. So that's your homework this week. How might I be more involved in the cosmic consciousness? How might I begin making more decisions on behalf of the world? How might I begin treating other people as though they are also part of me? Make sense? Okay, so I'm going to close with a, a quote and a prayer. This is how Ernest Holmes ends his book, The Beverly Hills Lectures. He says, The whole process of evolution was necessary for the emergence of a cosmic consciousness. This is so that each one of us might be on the pathway of our own life. That each of us, whether we know it or not, might set the law of our own life. For there is no other law than the law that we each set, as it comes into conjunction with the one universal law of cause and effect. We cannot change the law, but the very power which limits and binds us, rightly used, is the ultimate source of freedom for all. There is nothing between us and God but our own thoughts and beliefs. Let us pray. There is one power, one presence, one life, one joy, one love, one abundance. There is only this one thing in its many aspects. I choose to call it God, but it goes by many names, of course. And within it is me. If God truly is all there is, that also means me. It means each one of us, each of us a spark of the divine, each one of us with our own creative abilities, even as God created the heavens and the earth. So each of us busy creating our own experience of the world, our thoughts become things. And so on this day and each day forward, I take a pledge, my own pledge, for recognizing I'm not in this alone that my consciousness merges with something larger than just me, that I am part of the divine as each one of us is, and so I begin taking action on behalf of us all. I begin seeking and seeing ways that, that my love can be freely given away, that my abundance and my, my peace and all of the good things in me not only are given to me, but can be re-given and multiplied as I make my path in this world. And as it is true for me, this challenge exists for each one of us, each of us capable of taking into account more than just our own lives, seeing in each of us humans that spark of divinity and allowing compassion and love and joy and peace to really move forward in the world, to uplift us all.
And so for this, I give great thanks. For this, I understand it is God's work in the world, as together we say, and so it is. Thank you so much for being here today. So glad you were here. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you happen to be in the Portland, Oregon area, we'd love to have you visit in person. The Portland Center for Spiritual Living is located at 6211 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. We have inspirational services at 9 and 11 a.m. every Sunday. Our mission is to open hearts, ignite minds, and to make a difference. If you'd like to support our center and its podcasts, you can donate online at www.pcsl.us slash donate. Our website is also the place to learn more about what's going on at the center or to contact us. Allow us to become part of your extended community. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are most welcome at the Center for Spiritual Living.